Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Arthi Shaw, Executive Editor and host for today's episode. So today we're going to look at diversity in tech PR, um, both in the US and in the UK. Um, tech PR is an area where um, there, the diversity issue has been quite quite noticeable. I believe uh, last year that the Female Founders Fund um, reported that you know amongst the 30 major tech companies, um, 88% of the employees are either Caucasian or Asian, and I think 64% were male according to, to their stats. Um, and that's, we, you know, with the exception of the male piece, um, we do see this reflected largely in some of the tech PR agencies. So I want to dig into this a bit further. Um, to do that, we have Sarita Musanti, uh, who is a Black woman who has worked in tech PR in Silicon Valley for several decades now, um, leading agencies and teams. Um, and Sarita, I think you've just joined Pretel as their EVP and head of their B2B and enterprise tech practice. That's right. Yes, and then we also have Rich Fogg, who is founder and CEO of the CC Group, which is a tech firm based in London. Um, and as a white agency CEO, uh, Rich is gonna talk about sort of the responsibility that he bears in sort of dealing with this issue. Welcome, Sarita and Rich. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Okay, so let, let, let's start. Um, well, I, I wanna get one thing out of the way that you and I already talked about, and maybe we can kind of let our listeners in. I mean, this is an especially delicate issue to talk about, right? And, um, but one of the things I learned from last summer was that we need to become um, comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and also we need to stop making these conversations so hard. And I'm hoping we can do that here today. Um, and so, you know, and, and I should also let listeners know that I believe Sarita and Rich, you, you two don't know each other at all, really, no, right? No, we have not met. No. All right. So not so not only have I have I am I doing this 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 difficult conversation, but we're also doing it with like two relative strangers. So we'll see how how, how that goes. Um, I'm taking you. I'm taking you on. <laughs> so Sarita, um, let's let's start with you. I would love for you to share your experience. You know, as 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 a black woman, you know, what drew you to tech PR, um, and then we can talk a little bit about sort of your 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 career rise. Um, I will say, uh, and I think that this is important, first and foremost, nothing drew me to tech PR. I had no thought of tech PR in my wildest dreams. And I think that that's a problem, right? Right off the bat, um, that, that, that didn't even occur to me that there was a place for me in that, in that industry. Um, you know, I, I sort of got into it by accident. I, I, I wanted to be a political consultant. I wanted to to make change, and and I had a very hard time with uh, as a as a twenty one year old in my first kind of political consulting role. I had a very hard time with losing, <laughs> and that is something you have to sort of come to terms with. And it's not really about you, right? It's about the candidate. But I was not. I think I could handle it now. But at the time, that that was just a little more failure than I was prepared to to deal with on a regular basis. And I switched over to public relations because I really enjoyed the media relations and the event management and the pieces of that um, that were that were happening already uh, for me in, in political consulting. Uh, but I was really bored. I was doing a very general 
um, we had a, a bakery and uh, an, an architect and um, a law firm. And I, I, I wasn't intellectually challenged in, in the way that tech PR mm-hmm. has done for me. Um, and so I left it. I left PR and, and I, I didn't look back. I, I accidentally was placed there. I was temping. I wanted to, to try to make my way in, into management consulting. And I was sort of temping to try to get my elbow in the door landed at a tech PR firm in a six week gig and fell in love with it and realized that uh, the, the, the PR could be really smart and really challenging and really thoughtful, um, it, you know, especially in tech where you have to learn something new every day. Um, but there was no one that looked like me in right. that, that office. I, I, I was in San Francisco. Okay, so uh, were, you, were you in San Francisco for this whole, this whole time? Well, no, my first agency was in San Diego because okay. I am a, a, an alum of UC San Diego. So, so you can imagine um, th- there were no other Black people in that <laughs> office. Uh, and then I, my family's in the Bay Area, so I had come back to the Bay Area to, to look for a job. And there, at that time, a lot there was a lot more work. Uh, probably still the case, but um, uh, I, I think the gap is diminished uh, as, as San Diego has risen as certainly a biotech center. But at that time, there wasn't anything there. So I, I came back. Um, looking for business opportunity to, to use my degree. And, uh, and as I said, sort of fell into this, this tech PR gig that I really enjoyed. There wasn't anyone that looked like me there, but I didn't give that much thought because I wasn't really trying to, I was trying to figure out what my career was going to be. And I, I wasn't thinking about, you know, I had I'd sort of given up my dream of making a difference anyway <laughs> on, a, on a political level. Um, and I, you know, I have been at agency ever since then. Um, and I would say that I did not, I was not represented. Uh, certainly I was not represented in the leadership anywhere um, that I went. Uh, I will say that about, uh, about um, six years in, I realized that one of the things I really wanted was a female mentor and started looking for privately owned female-led organizations and those exist in our space yes Um, and so was able to find some some mentorship in that level but maybe about 10 years ago i realized um that 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 wasn't the same thing and that's a funny thing to say you know halfway through a 20-year career i realized that that there weren't any black people but what i mean to say is i found myself in an agency where I was the senior person of color. Um, And I I probably had been true before, (laughs) but I I hadn't thought about it in those terms. And I, you know, as a a senior vice president, the the only person of color on the executive team, people started coming to me, junior people started coming to me um, when things were happening, like Trayvon Martin or um, some of these, some of these names that we know really familiar, uh, familiarly, uh, that that are are the were the precursors to George Floyd. Um, we had, uh, I, I I'm not going to remember which what year it was, but we had maybe about um, maybe about five years ago there was a particularly bad summer for racial violence, yeah. and people started coming to me and just saying you know, I don't know where to go with these feelings. Um, but I, I, in my home and my family and my friends, this is all we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then I come to work and there's no discussion of it at all. Yeah. 
And we talk about everything else that happens in the news in PR, right? It all affects our work. So we talk about it, but we weren't talking about that. And I don't know how to handle it. Wow. Wow. I mean, did were you able, so at this point you were in a leadership position, um, were you able to bring these conversations into the places you worked? And if so, how, how was that received? I was. So in this particular time, I think it's a great example. I will, I went to the, 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 the executive committee in one of our meetings, I sat down and I said, I don't know how to raise this. So I'm just going to raise it. This multiple people have come to me now that, that, that they're uncomfortable in the workplace. They're having trouble dealing with what's going on in the world. And they're not sure how to be their authentic selves in the office. We're not talking about it. And, and I think it's a problem. Um, and it was incredibly well-received, you know, there's, there's a lot of support when, you know, when there's a specific issue, it's very, it's very easy for people to say, yes, they're, they're, they're very well-meaning, you right. We're, we're dealing with liberal people who actually care in general in, in terms of the PR leadership in, in San Francisco. Right. So, you know, it was wonderfully re- received, but I don't know that, that the group and myself included really at that time even knew what to do. What, what do we, what do we do to address that? Um, and I think the other key learning for me that came out of that was, I was in a room where I was senior and respected and I was comfortable. These are my peers. I had been there for a number of years. And by the end of me just kind of laying this out, I was trembling and nearly in tears. And I was probably the safest voice to express this in the company. So if I felt that traumatized raising it, how must these junior staffers feel Right? How hard is it to bring this up and to talk about it um, in an environment where you just don't know if you're going to be supported? Right. I, I really, it was a really rude awakening for me, and I will say that it, I still look at that and laugh because why I wasn't, I wasn't bringing my own concerns to the table. I think that I had spent so much time subverting those concerns um, and not, and and assuming that I didn't deserve to be heard and to bring those problems in that I needed to compartmentalize, but it didn't even occur to me that I could be feeling those things, but I felt it was important to represent those other folks. And it's taken me several years to, to sort of open up with myself and say, no, actually, you know, you're feeling these things too. You need support too. You know, and, and I feel like that, that line got even harder to distinguish in this last year as we were dealing with the presidential election. And I know you know, agencies were in this position or leadership was in this position where there was once, you know, there was one candidate that was really traumatizing people of color, yet they didn't want to appear as partisan in bringing in partisan politics into the workforce. So, you know, I guess, you know, just kind of one follow-up question I'll have on this is, you know, you you were, you you were working, you know, for, for much of the election cycle. How was that? How, How did you manage that within a, environment where you know people's politics could vary yeah well uh it it was very difficult um i definitely was in an organization where we were very thoughtful about not bringing politics to the table that that was a very clear priority that we wanted to be 
careful and respectful and not take a side. Um, and I value that. Right. So, uh, you know, at that point I was, a, I was the North America leader, <laughs> uh, having, having sort of shifted roles was very cognizant that I, that I didn't, I was coming into an organization that previously had not been even that had not had any minority representation in leadership and had really not had much in the way of, of female representation. So I was, I felt a lot of pressure to be supportive and to, to try to find ways to build, you know, your sort of standard diversity committee and do the things that you could do that weren't risky, right? That, that no one could say this is, um, you know, this, this is edgy or avant-garde or, or you're, you know, you're risking anything. Um, I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to hear people directly. Um, but again, I didn't feel like I could express any of my concerns. Right. Um, and, and that's, you know, I'm not pointing the finger, actually. That is, uh, it is possible that I would have been very supported had I raised my concerns, but I didn't know that. And I didn't trust that. And I didn't know if I should be feeling these things or if I should be, be even if I, even if feeling them is acceptable, which I think I'd gotten to the point where feeling them was acceptable, but I didn't think that I should inflict that on anyone because I was the boss. Right. Right. So I should be helping them not looking for some sort of community that would support me. And I think that the, those are mistakes that I made. Um, we were not thriving as a business. COVID played a big part in that, obviously. Um, but also, you know, I think a lot of us were not on our game and I 100% was not performing at my best. I was watching MSNBC until two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I was thinking about George Floyd and I was conflating everything. Like I was thinking about, immigrant children in cages and i was dreaming about my my own little girls in cages like i was a mess right. i was really personally struggling with this but not sharing it and ultimately you know and ultimately lost my job again partly because of covid but also you know my performance certainly wasn't there you know and it's interesting that you you mentioned that you know you all had made this deliberate choice to like take not have a political discussion within the, within the workplace but What's interesting to me, there's there's two things is, you know, we're, we're at this point where we, the risk equation has shifted for brands that, that, that we counsel. And, and it's not so much like we don't want to get involved, it's too risky. It's not getting involved is too risky. 100%. And, and, and for you to describe what your what your life was like at home, to, to pretend like politics doesn't exist in the workplace, you know, we're really kind of taking the humanity out of the workplace and, and not allowing people to bring in their whole selves, right? I mean, if, if, if the election is causing this much anxiety, um, there should, you would think that there would, should be a place for that, right? Within a workforce. Um, so without question, without well, question, it's, cr it's critical. And, and I think for me, you know, in learning to accept these things, these feelings in myself, it has really forced me to take a look at the workplaces and, and coming back to work, really looking at, okay, what are the things that I need in an organization for me to be successful, not just professionally. I know I can do the job and I can I can contribute in that way, but to contribute my best, I need to be able to be my whole self. Right. And, and some of those things aren't gonna be pretty or easy or comfortable. Right, 
Right. Um, and in and in figuring that out, you know, once you cross that line yourself, it becomes so much easier to realize and and accept that need in others, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, yes. I would never expect anyone to to close those doors off in a way that I might have a few years ago because I was expecting it of myself. Right, right. You know, yeah, I mean, as, as we talk about bringing your whole self to work, it's like, you, you know, you, you can't say that and just say, well, but we're also going to pretend like all of these things don't exist when we're, in, <laughs> right. when we're at work. Okay. So, so, so I want to pause for a minute now and, and, and shift a little bit now and, and kind of turn to, to Rich, because Rich, I mean, you know, I'm sure your experience as, as in, in agency management and, and even earlier in your career has probably not been being the only person in the room. And if it were, I'm assuming it would probably worked in your advantage. I mean, I've, you know, anecdotally, I've heard stories about how men sort of get, get kind of fast tracked um, in this business because there is so few of them. Um, so I, I want to hear a little bit about sort of your, you know, kind of listening to this and sort of how that um, kind of landed with you. And then if you wanted to kind of talk a little bit about kind of what you're doing as, a, as, a, as an agency CEO to sort of address some of the things that Sarita has talked about. Yeah, sure. And Sarita, wow, what a, what a lot to go through um, <laughs> in, a, in a short period of time. And I can totally understand how it would impact. Yeah, we saw, obviously, you know, there's a small matter of an ocean um, between us. Um, but, you know, we, we saw a really big impact on the team, you know, across ethnic boundaries um, of, uh, of George Floyd. And, you know, we started talking about, you know, we were holding sort of monthly discussions around it, doing lots of things just to sort of normalize the issues and normalize the conversation so that people became more comfortable with the idea and more engaged, et cetera, et cetera. So I can definitely see how it can become a really sort of critical problem um, that if it's not addressed can sort of simmer and simmer and simmer. Um, I think Turning to turning to us, I mean, we're treating DEI as a critical strategic business priority, right? You know, and that's driven partly by heart. You know, we're a, in a society with a racist past and a racist present, and systemic racism is appalling, but it's real, and there's homophobia and sexism and disability discrimination, and inequity is everywhere that we look, um, and the playing field is supremely tilted. Um, you know, it's it's the working definition of unfair. It makes me angry. It makes it makes my team angry. Um, but it's also driven by head. Um, you know, hiring in the London PR scene is horrible, um, and we have to be as inclusive as possible if we want the best talent. Um, you know, and also a handful of very large tech firms are starting to demand diversity of their agencies, and it makes a lot of sense to get out ahead of that. So it was actually in the, at a provoke um, event in London in uh, early 2019 that sort of took me from, hmm, this is unpleasant, but CC Group's fine, we're not like that, um, to we need to do something, we need to do something now. Um, on that panel um, was a quite amazing lady who in UK PR circles needs no introduction whatsoever, but I don't think she's quite gone global yet, so permit me a moment. Um, her name is Elizabeth Bananuka, and she's a successful PR contractor and runs BME PR Pros. And she is a force of nature. Um, she's articulate, she's driven. And whenever I think of Elizabeth, the word formidable pops into my head, totally unbidden. Um, she will name, she will shame, she will take no prisoners whatsoever. Um, anyway, um, one of the practical pieces of advice from that panel 
for agency bosses who wanted to start tackling diversity was put it on your board agenda. Force yourself to talk about it every month, every quarter. Um, and so we happened to have a board meeting the following day and I put it on the agenda and we discussed it. And I was charged with looking at our numbers and developing a strategy and the next month that was built and approved. And the strategy was exactly what you'd expect from a bunch of white people uh, moaning about our own lack of diversity and how hard it was to hire people from ethnic minorities. Um, and we committed to try and address the supply problem, you know, offering sort of mentoring, internship schemes, apprenticeships, going into schools and, and, and things like that, um, and, and change the way in which we hire. And looking back, it was a woefully poor strategy. Uh, yeah, embarrassing in, in many respects, but it made a difference. Um, and we went from being slightly behind some devastatingly poor industry benchmarks to being slightly ahead. Um, but what was really missing was, was a framework. You know, something that gave us best practice, something that gave us structure. And I spoke to half a dozen agency bosses in large and mid-sized agencies, and no one had anything that I could use in crib. And then in June, you know, really hot on the heels of George Floyd, um, BME PR Pros, Elizabeth's organization, launched the Blueprint. Um, and that's a certification, a kite mark, if you will, for PR agencies that want to be more diverse and demonstrate their commitment to diversity. And it's focused on the UK right now, but every single person, agency, in-house, tech, not tech, regardless of location, listening to this podcast can benefit from going to, I think it's thisistheblueprint.co.uk and reading about it and the commitments that you make once you become blueprinted. It, it's absolutely the gold standard for DEI. It's an amazing piece of work. And as you can probably tell, I'm absolutely in love with it. Um, you have to complete a massive and very challenging questionnaire. It picks apart everything from your policies and your processes to any gender and ethnic pay gaps. It looks at your approach to recruitment, how you allocate work, how you manage client relationships. I mean, it does everything. And I thought CC Group was pretty good at diversity until I read that questionnaire. And it took us nearly six months to prepare our entry. Six months! We tore up everything and we put it back together again. And then in, in February, after a rigorous judging process, um, CC Group was blueprinted. And now 11 agencies um, have that status. And two of us, Harvard and CC Group, are out-and-out out tech agencies. Mm -hmm. um, what's also exciting is that Ketchum UK and Hope and Glory were in the same cohort as us. It's definitely the biggest agencies that have been blueprinted so far. But it's starting to demonstrate that that's really sort of you know get building speed, and I know Provoke's been a big big supporter of uh, mm -hmm. the blueprint about it a lot. But there are thousands of agencies in the UK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's eleven blueprinted agencies. Um, but that's that's what we're doing as a business. Um, and then can, sort of, can I can I ask one question on, on the blueprint? Because you had mentioned what what you all had talked about doing before, and it was pretty you know the the standard. Um, things that I hear from most agencies, yeah. what was the most shocking difference between what you all had in place and what the blueprint was <laughs> sort of imposing, you know, and was saying, no, look, here's how you need to do it. The, the devastating amount of structure and policies and processes and backing things up and data and measurement and sort of all of that kind of stuff, it put real rigor into it. It was exactly what we needed. We were really struggling for sort of, well, what do we do next? Especially when lockdown hit, we can't go to schools 
but we can't run internships in the same way and we can't run mentoring programs in the same way it's really hard um and you know i think it, it just forced us to look at absolutely everything um that we were doing it forced us to workshop um policies with the team go and build stuff for the first time we spent ages doing a sort of crowdsource um client consultancy charter because there's no point in having all of these wonderful policies and processes in your organization <laughs> if your clients don't respect them right. um, so so yeah so it was it was the rigor really that, mm -hmm. that was the main thing right so and before you go on i want to i wanted to ask sarita kind of what your thoughts are on having some sort of kite marking system and whether you think that would be beneficial. And, and I wonder why we haven't really seen that take off in the US in the same way. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that we definitely need, I think that the, the US agencies are struggling in the same way, right? I, I, as I said before, I think that in many, many cases, far more than not, the intent is there, the desire is there, um, but, the, but there's the same problem that, that you're talking about, which it's not, it's not an easy thing to determine what the path is. How do you do it? Um, you know, we, at Praytel, we do a fair bit of counseling to our clients in this area. Um, certainly more, right, more in the past year than ever before. Um, but because our clients are the, you know, the, it's become it's become central to their business as well. Um, and, and there's no blueprint for them. Um, and why do I think that that is the case in the U.S. versus the U.K.? You know, I don't know. I, it appears to me that race issues in the United States are just so fraught with politics and with sort of our own historical complexity and, and, and uh, you know, with with all respect to the to the complexity of the racial history of other countries. I don't mean to say that, that you know, we have a, we have a monopoly on racism uh, at all. Uh, but I definitely think here it, it's, it's got some real political overtones. And I think we just sort of all shy away from making rules about it because we don't want to be wrong because the, the, ramific the, the, the ramifications of being wrong are, are pretty dangerous. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's the mistake, right? In the United States, we don't talk about race. Yeah. We just don't. We think we do, mm -hmm. right? We do for windows of time. George Floyd makes us talk about race. Um, and, and this has lasted longer than I had any hope of it lasting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that is a, a, a positive thing. Um, but I saw this this happen, you know, this, this happened with Ferguson and, and then you know, and then it sort of went away because the U.S. media talks about diversity. Here's my opinion. Uh, my opinion is that U.S. media only has the the, the stomach for one uh, maligned group at a time. Yes. Yes. No. I, and, and I mean, we should right? actually say that you know what the tragedy that we're dealing with in the U.S. this morning. Um, you know, last night there there was a mass shooting in Atlanta. Um, that, you know, Isarita, as you even mentioned before we had started recording, I believe eight um, and people were killed and I believe six of them were Asian, of Asian descent. I think there were women as well. Um, you know, we're, it, we're and, and to your point, Isarita, you mentioned even before we started recording, I mean, we're not, we haven't really been talking in the U.S. about what's happening with the um, kind of, you know, the, the Asian hate um, right now in this moment. 
No, and, and, and Asian violence is absolutely on the rise. And, and it's an interesting, it's sort of two separate problems. One, I think the media really does only have the energy for one maligned group at a time. So we went from Ferguson and all of those sort of that, that window of time, I hate to bucket it together, but it, it sort of, it sort of, there was a, there was a, there was a lead, there was a lead time on that. Right. And then we switched over to me too. And, and the, the racial conversations kind of went away. Not that the violence went away, not that the problem went away, but the dialogue went away. And we talked about me too. And look, don't, don't get me wrong. That was also an important conversation, but it's frustrating that we can't have two parallel, address two issues at the same time. Um, We're, we're, you know, the political landscape has been, has sort of taken over from, from you too. Uh, sorry, from you too, from me too. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the racial element of that is obviously the dominant one. So we're back in a racial dialogue, but it hasn't included the, the voices for the Asian community. Yeah. Um, and I find that to be frustrating, right? It, it mm-hmm. isn't just George Floyd, oh, uh, uh, you rest his soul, right? He, he, he's so important for showing us, uh, showing us the visual and and reminding us of how of how awful this is. But it isn't just him, right? It isn't just black people. Mm-hmm. Um, n- we're not talking about Asian violence, and it it, it, it continues to frustrate me. But I, I think that that's back to the earlier question. That is part of the problem here that we're a little bit one track, and so. You know, countries are countries. Companies certainly are hesitant to invest right. in something that isn't going to have brand cachet in two years. Right, and, and so that's that's the other question. And, and you know, and I would actually because you know we keep talking about how difficult this is and how we don't talk about race. And and so I want to bring Rona look to you, Rich, because part of the issue, right? I mean, it's like you know, like you said. I mean, your employees were saying they were talking about this with their families and with their friends after work. I think, I guess the piece that we're not saying here is it is difficult to talk with white people about race often. And so Rich, I'm just curious in terms of like how you're um, addressing that within your organization and, and as a white CEO and how you're sort of creating the space to do that. And one of the conversations I had last summer um, was with some diversity leaders within our industry and, and several had said that unless you address white supremacy and white privilege within the workplace, it is very, very difficult to have these conversations um, so, so Richard, I'm curious to see sort of how, how you're making space for this. Yeah, I mean, so bottom line is I'm a white, straight, middle-class, reasonably well-educated, able-bodied bloke, right? I have all the privileges. Like, I haven't left anyone any other privileges. I've, I've, I've hoovered, them, hoovered them all up. And it's, it's my responsibility to use those privileges to make things more equal for those that don't. Right. That, that's that's where it starts. That's that's sort of the the initial thinking process. And so, as a result, you know, I've been reading and watching and listening and talking about DEI with a range of other people to improve my knowledge. And then we have to take that conversation forward. And we have to not force, but we have to create safe spaces in which people can talk about these things and not worry about saying the wrong thing. When, when George Floyd happened, um, when, when that all blew up, um, I froze, right, as, a, as an agent, as a white agency CEO. You know, I had, had, had somebody saying, we need to put sort of a black square on our Instagram, we need to go out and talk about this. And I was like, I have no credibility or, 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 or authenticity here, right? I, I, I don't know what it's like. I can't possibly 
and I feel I don't feel it, it would feel like purpose washing. Mm -hmm. And it took, and of course, we're in the middle of trying to recover from the beating that we took from COVID at the time as well, right? So I'm sort of, you know, you talk about the uh, US media not being able to focus on more than one thing at the same time, Sidorita. I certainly felt like that. I was like, I'm trying to save jobs and rebuild this company. Sure. Good kicking. Um, but actually, it took you know, it took a few people talking to me and saying, no, 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 you are normally out front with this kind of stuff, Rich, you know, be it mental health, be it whatever, you are normally willing to go out there and learn, and that's exactly what you need to do here. We're not expecting you to have all the answers, come into this conversation, um, and that's what we did, um, and, and I'm so pleased that sort of, you know, be it sort of people from ethnic minorities that, that brought me in, or members of the rest of the team that were willing to sort of bear their souls and talk about it, um, that was really important. And it all started with that conversation in the same way that we sort of did a huge amount on mental health in 2019. It all starts by talking and sharing and, and sort of normalizing that conversation so that you're not as nervous about, what do I say, ethnic minorities or people of color or BME or fame or like, what, what, what do I do? Apparently the latest yeah. UK, uh, UK government advice is ethnic minorities. Um, but, but you end up in the sort of tying yourself in knots because you don't want to get it wrong. Right. right. That's actually, you know, that's not the solution. The solution is to embrace it, but learn from when you do get it wrong and don't do it again. Um, yeah, you're, you're forgiven for a little while. So we really had to, you know, it, it, it sort of stems from, as I was saying earlier, it's sort of, it's my responsibility. It's the responsibility of white leaders and employees to, to, to make progress towards racial equity, but also diversity and inclusion on a much broader, in a much broader sense. And mm -hmm. you know, you, it's not the responsibility of ethnic minorities to educate white people. Um, you know, you have to understand, recognize your privilege because in the main, I've been afforded a lot of opportunities and have the role I have because of my big bag of privileges, right? And I have to recognize that whether it's fair or not, I'm here because of that. Um, and I think sort of, as you think about it as an, on an organizational level, like any strategic imperative, you have to allocate resources to it. That means time and that means money. Um, and then further from that you know it is important you have to recognize that it is impossible to do too much right huh. you cannot do too much on this. Um, you cannot over rotate on it it is impossible because we is so blisteringly unequal at the moment that it's impossible to do it's impossible to go too far you know our first diversity strategy was woefully embarrassingly poor but it was a start and that's where you and that's where you have to go from, you know, that's, no, that's uh, taking it from a conversation into real action. You know, I, I also like the point you made. I mean, like this not being afraid to fail because, you know, it's this idea that it's like white versus everybody else. But we everyone is afraid of misstepping. Right. I mean, yeah, totally. I, I mean, everyone has different blind spots in their own lives that they're afraid of yeah. misstepping. And I think, yeah, I mean, this and, and to your point about being able to reflect and learn from that mistake, I think is critical. So now I, I, we're going to have to wrap up here. So I want to give each of you sort of a, a chance to give our listeners a takeaway from this conversation that you would like to make sure that they, um, they leave with. Um, Sarita, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest thing is, you know, 
first of all, uh, for for anyone, uh, you know, for African-Americans who are working in, in PR, you know, in an agency, you are likely in a predominantly white environment. The first thing that you need to do is give yourself permission to feel your feelings. I wish someone had said that to me uh, 20 years ago, that, 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 that feel your feelings and expect that uh, that your colleagues will be supportive and understanding. They may or may not be, but that is not on you, right? Yeah. You you are entitled to be who you are. And if you are not in an environment that will support that, you can find one. Right. I have, and it's amazing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. And I think like, shifting that burden, um, I think is, is really critical. Um, Rich, what would, what would be your, your takeaway? I think I think it's you know whatever privilege you have it is your responsibility to use it to help level that playing field mm -hmm. whatever it is and everyone's got some form of privilege mm -hmm. I think it's really important to recognize that you, know, you actually have a responsibility as a good human being whether mm -hmm. you're a leader or not to use mm -hmm. that to uh, to help level the playing field right well, Rich and Sarita, you know, there was, I'm realizing as, you know, as I started this conversation, how brave it was for both of you to come on this, not knowing each other at all, and just sort of <laughs> trusting that, that this would be a productive conversation. So, 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 you know, you know, despite the, the, even, even the, the cultural differences, right, from, from, from the UK and the US, although, and I think our two countries are quite similar and our complicated racial histories, um, but, you know, obviously the way that racism plays out here is, is it's, there, there are nuances that I think you all were able to bridge really, really well. So thank you to you both for coming on here. And, and I really hope that this is a conversation that the industry continues to pay attention to and we, we keep having. Thank you. I think, I think Rich and I need to have a Zoom happy hour. <laughs> yes. Let's do this. It's, 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 it's perfect time for me. But, uh... <laughs> Maybe a bit early. Yeah. <laughs> you can throw something in your breakfast smoothie. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right well this was an episode of the provoke media podcast and we'll be back again soon with another episode you have been listening to the provoke podcast brought to you by provoke media and produced by the international broadcast specialists marketeers Support for this podcast comes from notified the integrated intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.